I, I've seen a lot of shocking things in, in court, but the, the moment they played the CCTV of him being killed, that was, you know, one of the most shocking things I've, I've seen. And him and uh, his wife coming back with the, holding the little boy's hand. It looks a very wholesome scene. It's Christmas Eve. And then suddenly this dark figure appears behind them and uh, fires rapidly. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. A high-flying young record producer is gunned down outside his pricey London home after returning from a Christmas Eve celebration with his glamorous wife and their two-year-old son. The victim, Flamir Bakiri, a brother of one of the stars of Real Housewives of Cheshire, is quickly identified as a kingpin in an international drug gang. A police investigation leads straight back to Sweden, where an underworld has gone to war and a Dubai-based criminal is hungry for revenge. Today, I'm joined by journalist Chris Summers, editor of Total Crime UK, who covered the trial at Sour Crown Court, where a hitman was handed a minimum sentence of 35 years and where the fallout of a gangland crime was laid bare. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. When I was reading this story about Flamir Bakiri, it sort of struck me that maybe you're in the same mindset as I am, that this was one that stands out. You know, in here in, in Ireland, we're constantly, there's all sorts of uh, gun crimes before the courts, and I'm sure London is that multiplied by 100. So finding a story that is unique and interesting within the Old Bailey and um, across the UK, this one for me was just so international, um, it brought together a lot of kind of the stuff I write about a lot, uh, um, a lot of the time. I just thought it was fascinating. The two parallel worlds, the underworld and, and the real world that the rest of us live in, how they kind of collided in this story. So just tell me a little bit about Flamir Bakiri and, and what happened to him. Yeah, you're right. Um, I was talking to one of the detectives who, uh, you know, was in, investigating the case and asking him what he was doing next. And he said, oh, just, uh, you know, teenagers killing other teenagers, you know, par for the course. You know? So I think they were quite excited to work on this, on the Bakiri murder, because it was it was so different. It was it was international. It had all sorts of elements. Um, yeah, so Flammer Bakiri, apparently he was known as Alex, I think, to uh, a lot of his friends. But yeah, he was he was uh, of Albanian origin. Um and in fact, it was quite interesting that most of the defend most of the people in this case, although they were from Sweden, they had, um, you know, it, Sweden is a very multi-ethnic country, multicultural country now. Um, and they, I think there was only one person with a, an actual sort of Swedish name, uh, apart from the police officers. So um, this, you know, this was all about international organised crime, and these gangs had people who are all sorts of origins, Albanian, Tunisian. Um, uh, yeah, Flamir Bakiri um, was, well, to, to outwardly, outward purposes, he was a record producer. That was what he was uh, purporting to be uh, when he, he bought this house in Battersea. Um, but that was clearly just a cover story. He, he was actually a, 
Um, he was described as a very big fish by one of the lawyers, a uh, very big fish in the world of organised crime. And um, he'd been suspected of uh, international drug smuggling as far back as 2007. But apparently he'd never served any time. So he, he was obviously quite a clever criminal, quite a, um, a sort of high, high-end uh, operator. But of course, we see that a lot when, when these sort of street dealers elevate quickly in the circles of organised crime. All of a sudden, they're not touching the product, they're ordering, they're directing and whatever. He was part of a gang led by Daniel Johansson Petrovsky um, in Sweden. And, you know, Sweden is all really about Ikea and very, you know, cool homes and, and uh, you know, just don't think that organised crime is really big in Sweden, but of course it is because it's it's big everywhere, isn't it? But he was part of that gang and I think it was around 2019, was it, that he moved to London. There had been a, a row between Petrovsky's gang and another gang headed up by a guy called Amir Meki, who... I have certainly linked before to Ridwan Taji. Now, that's throwing quite a few names at people, but Taji is the boy that's up in the courts in the Netherlands at the moment on the Marengo trial. We've covered it a bit on the podcast, and he would have been a business partner in the European super cartel with Daniel Kinahan. Mecky has been described as an associate of his, a gang member or whatever. So Petrovsky and Mecky go to war in the streets of Sweden, there's attempts at assassinations. Um, Bakiri moves to London, um, purporting to be a uh, record producer, along with his wife and his his young child. Beautiful house there in Battersea he was living in. Um, and But he, of course, moving these days from one country to another doesn't save you from a hitman's bullet, does it? No, no, you're right. I mean, you're right about uh, Sweden, isn't it? Only ever come across my radar crime-wise because uh, about 10, 15 years ago, there was a, a big war between biker gangs over there, um, the Hells, In- Hells Angels and the Bandidos, which got pretty massive. Now they were firing uh, rockets at each other and, uh, you know, but I'd never, you know, realised that there were sort of organised crime networks. Um, like you, But like you say, they, they are very big, these, these guys. Um, Johansson Petrovsky and Meki were apparently they were both about the same sort of size gangs. I think Meki's network might have been a bit bigger. And like you say, he was, um, he does have a connection with Ridwan Taghi. Um, apparently there's evidence that he, because he also operated in Spain, Meki. And I think, well, he's, he's now going to go on trial uh, there later this year. And apparently um, there's a, there's a recording of him um, and Taggy uh, talking together, where he he describes Taggy as patron, you know, which nice. obviously means boss. I don't think he was his actual, you know, line manager boss, but he mm. obviously, you know, realised that Ridwan and Taggy was a bigger a bigger beast than him, and uh, he he gave respect to him. I mean, Mecky is only twenty four years old, oh my gosh. so he's a very young guy. Um, you know, <laughs> if he gets away with the uh, with this trial in in Spain and and you know who knows what he where he might end up but um yeah these two Spain wouldn't of- necessarily be the spot where a lot of our law enforcement would like to see these guys ending up because their justice system can be very slow um and some would suggest it isn't really fit for purpose for this kind of stuff 
Yes. Well, Amir Meki was uh, arrested in uh, Dubai, I think it was in 2020. And I think there were sort of various countries queuing up to to extradite him. I think Sweden wanted him back. Um, but he's gone, he's ended up in Spain um, and he's, he's, he's involved with this gang. You probably know, you know, obviously know them, uh, Los Suecos, uh, which is Spanish for the Swedes. Uh, and they they were involved in at least two murders, probably more. Um, I, I think they might have been doing sort of contract hits for other criminals in Spain, as well as their own, you know, vendettas. Mm. So, uh, yeah, they were, they're, they're a nasty bunch. So back to Bakiri. So what sort of a lifestyle did he lead in London? And um, he felt obviously that he was living under the radar as a record producer and obviously a very wealthy man. Yeah, I mean, he, he could just afford, I think he paid sort of by cash or virtually, uh, you know, bought out, you know, this house in Battersea, which, um, you know, Battersea is a strange area. It used to be very, a hundred years ago, it was known as Red Battersea because it was, it was sort of, had a communist MP, had lots of uh, factories and it was very working class, but um, all that's changed. It's a very gentrified area. Um, the, the the road where he lived, these are, you know, very nice townhouses which go for a million or, or two million, et cetera. Um, so it, it's a very nice part of town now. Um, and, yeah, Bakiri, he, he was, um, you know, dining out in top London restaurants all the time. Uh, you know, I don't think he was doing much record producing, put it that way. He was, he was, <laughs> he was living a good life, but he was also very wary. Uh, he, he was well aware that he was a possible target. I mean, on the night he died, and apparently this was quite a common routine, his wife said that he told her to go into the restaurant, sit down at the table, then take um, photographs. I think, you know, photographs of the other people at the other tables and then send it to him. And only when he was confident that there was nobody in there who he knew or who, who could be uh, coming to get him, that he he would then go in and join her. So he was very security conscious. And of course, his sort of, the way we were told from the court case, Petrovsky sat at the top of their gang and there was then him, Bakiri, and another partner, Nayef Adawi. And the reason, I suppose, that Bakiri had moved to London in the first place was there had been an assassination attempt on a Dowie. Uh, they missed him, but they actually killed his girlfriend, um, yo- a young woman. So, you know, Bakiri's wife was very aware, I presume, of the level of danger. This was a real threat. This wasn't just, you know, my boyfriend is uh, making a few bob from drugs. This was like they were actually possible targets and her too. Yes, um, I mean she was. She did give evidence uh, at the um, trial. Uh, Deborah uh, Krasniki, the um, Bakiri's wife or widow now, and she was quite cagey. She she um, she basically denied that he was a drug dealer or that she knew that he was involved in crime. Um, she played all that down, and um, but you know, I, I mean, I, I think she was. She was probably friends with Nayef Adawi and his wife, uh, Carolina Hakim. I mean, they both had uh, young children, they, you know, and, and their, their husbands were both top criminals. So I, th- I think she fully knew what, what was going on and, and how much danger there was. Um, and in fact, when, when her husband was killed about an hour later, um, she was caught on a police body camera 
making a phone call to Adawi, telling him that, you know, watch out, you might be next. So, um, mm, interesting. Mm. A violent, violent world they were living in. Um, so the night of the killing, Christmas Eve 2019, and we'll come back to the planning of it because that really is, um, I suppose, maybe what would draw us to find this story so interesting. But um, they had been out in this restaurant and they returned to this house in Battersea, each holding a hand of their two-year-old child. Um, a sad image, I have to say, I thought that was from, from the, the evidence, but um, he was shot eight times uh, the back of the head. He was assassinated, killed in front of her and the child. Um, so obviously police investigation starts and I imagine the UK police are very quickly informed by their Swedish counterparts who this guy is, what his background is. So they probably know this wasn't just a random attack. This was a very targeted, highly organised uh, murder. But untangling just how highly organised this was is really been part and parcel of this case. So just tell me a little bit about that and what they discovered and how this had been planned across the globe. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen a lot of uh, shocking things in, in court, but the, the moment they played the CCTV of, of him being killed, that was, you know, one of the most shocking things I've, I've seen. And obviously the police couldn't release it, you know, because it was too disturbing and, and you know, that I'm sure the the wife wouldn't have wanted it released, but um, yeah, I mean, there, it, him and uh, his wife coming back with the, holding the uh, little boy's hand, and it looks a very wholesome scene. It's Christmas Eve, you know, people all around the country are, 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 you know, preparing for Christmas, getting excited. Children are getting excited, and then suddenly this dark figure appears behind them, uh, just as he opens the gate and uh, fires rapidly. Um, it, it was actually a total of 10 shots, um, eight hit, hit him. And, um, and and all this was caught with the, the audio as well. Um, the Kiri had a CCTV camera on his own house, um, you know, for, probably for obvious reasons. Um, and it, it had audio as well. So you could hear the, the, the gunfire and then immediately uh, the screams of uh, his wife. And she's, she's trying to protect the, the child, trying to, you know, um, cover his eyes and, and that sort of thing. It was, it was really quite a shocking business. But, yeah, they, the, the police um, then went on to find out that this is a meticulously planned operation um, by, by um, Mickey's gang. So they had, well, they, they can't say definitively that Mickey ordered it, but they do suspect that he did. And he got in touch with um, an individual in Sweden called Amit Karer. Now, your article, which is on your website, totalcrime.co.uk, details this guy as the fixer and what happened to him and where he is now is a mystery. But he basically organised from Sweden to send a hitman and some other people around it because, as we've heard many a time, you know, there might be one guy that pulls a trigger, but there's many people that organise a, a gangland hit. Mm. So, so what happened, and 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 how did they send these guys to to into London on a Christmas Eve to kill? Yeah, there, there was a total of uh, four uh, Swedish men went on trial. Um, I 
I presume, I don't know if Ireland has a joint enterprise like the UK, you know, that if even if you don't fire the shots of yourself, if you're part of the conspiracy, you can be charged yes. with murder. Um, that's the basis that these four went on trial. Um, two of them were acquitted. Um, they, they both gave evidence and basically said that they'd been manipulated by Ahmed Career and um, sort of tricked into coming over to London, had no idea that it was anything to do with the murder. And, um, yeah, two, so two of them were found not guilty. Another one was found guilty of only manslaughter. Uh, and it was only Anis Hamisi, the, the actual gunman himself, who was convicted of murder. But, um, yeah, it was, it was a really um, convoluted uh, scheme, po possibly over, you know, overly um, complex. Um, but, I mean, yes, and like you say, Amir Meki, uh, we cannot prove that he was behind it, but it it would appear, you know, it would make sense. You know, there was a feud going on between his mm. gang and Petrovsky. So it's it's highly likely that he was pulling the strings, but he was doing it through Ahmed Karea, um, who is a guy um, who had a lot of, um, had a lot of enemies in Sweden. He also had a massive uh, gambling debts, um, one of the people, perhaps unwisely, that he was in debt to was a Swedish gang called the Death Patrol. Um, I don't think you ever want to uh, <laughs> owe money to somebody called the Death Patrol. Uh, <laughs> so he, it's not clear whether, you know, Mackey got career to do it. Maybe he promised to pay off his debts or, or you know, he, he just did it as part of the network. But Ahmed career through EncroChat, you know, encrypted phones, he was... Um, in contact with other members of the gang, telling them, you know, go here, go uh, buy it. At first they tried to rent a car, uh, mm -hmm. I think, you know, for um, the hitman to use, but they couldn't rent a car. So they um, got some bicycles instead. Uh, and after the hit, well, he cycled to the, to the murder scene and then cycled away on uh, bicycles. Um, and also, you know, various things, they, they'd got litter pickers, um, which he used as part of this disguise as a council litter picker to do surveillance. And they also bought latex masks um, from a Swedish website, um, which were, you know, so that he could walk around in disguise and not be recognised. But obviously uh, <laughs> you kind of notice up close that somebody's wearing a latex mask. So there was a resident who noticed this, this guy collecting uh, litter didn't seem to be doing it very well. It seemed to be sort of almost pretending. And then when he, you know, when he saw up close that he was wearing a latex mask uh, or, you know, something weird about his face, he uh, sort of called him out and said, Oi, who, what are you doing there? Who, who do you work for? Uh, and that was Amici. And he just, he just sort of ran off or he sort of scuttled off. Um, and the police weren't called at that point. So uh, so that was in the days before the murder. So, yes. that, you know, and actually that CCTV is there. It's probably on YouTube now. Or I've seen it myself, but a bit sinister. All right. Seeing this guy going around with his litter picker and actually what he's doing is he's stalking his prey, a human being stalking another. Um, in the middle of all this, of course, and this is where I found you see the two worlds collide. A little bit of a sliding doors moment. There's a pensioner called Jeanette Dickinson, 
very English name. Mm. And she has a property rented out in Airbnb. And of course, they rent this property and she leaves little notes for them to say to enjoy their stay. I'm sure she's one of those super hosts. Yeah. Uh, enjoy your stay. And the Gordon Ramsay restaurant might be nice for dinner. And this is where it is. And when the police contact her because they realise that this gang have used this as a base, she actually emails the person who rented it over and says, uh, in a very polite, I would have thought very English way, my goodness, the police have been around talking about a murder. I hope you've nothing to do with it. (laughs) But, you know, here you have the real world, the normal world operating, and you have the sort of the underworld moving in and, you know, nobody has a clue what's going on. No, I mean, yeah, it was all done on Airbnb. I mean, the... This lady, who we sadly never got to meet because um, she died, I think, from natural causes um, between, you know, the murder and the trial. So she never um, gave poor, evidence. Poor Jeanette Dickinson. Yeah, it was quite interesting ah. because the, the defence at one point was able to tell the jury, you know, this is what we would have asked her if she was in court, you know. Um, well, you know, Chris, that might have been a terrifying ordeal for that woman because that's what you find again and again. Normal yeah. members of the public who witness something, who get caught up in it, whatever way, the trauma of having to go to court then and face these massive, big, mega organised criminals and give your your bit of evidence that's going to make up the tapestry of, in the case of uh, the hitman, a guilty verdict. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it may have taken its toll on her. The, the stress of uh, you know this pending trial. Um, we're not mm. quite sure how how she died, but yeah, it's it's quite possible. Um, obviously, there was COVID and the pandemic as well. Um, mm. But yeah, she she uh, rented the flat on Airbnb. Um, one of the one of the, the Swedish guys um, rented it. He actually did it with money that was you know from somebody else, and it was all very sort of mysterious. Um, but he rented it, you know, she obviously thought he was just a just a Swedish guy, maybe come in with his girlfriend and just to spend a, a romantic week uh, Christmas in in London. And she was, yeah, she was giving him tips on, you know, oh, you can go around, Gordon Ramsay's got a nice restaurant around the corner, you should go there, but you have to book and all this sort of thing. So she's completely innocent. And then only afterwards, you know, the police contact her and says, you realise your flat was used by a, a, a gang, you know, murdered somebody up the road and she's like you know a little bit shocked but um you know like some yes yeah, like a picture got the picture of a you know an english uh, lady um who's perhaps a little bit intrigued about it and so she she emails the guy and says you know i do hope uh, it wasn't you <laughs> but if there's anything i can do to help um you know. yeah so, uh, yeah, it was yeah. a little bit, a small little bit of humour in 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 an otherwise very dark story. You know what we get, what we get with all these details is a little snapshot, a little view into what's going on. Probably all around us at all the time that we just don't realise. We've got a little idea of what's happening, and you see with the use of that those EncroChat phones. Of course, this was twenty nineteen. By twenty twenty, um. The police in a massive operation had hacked into the EncroChat system, this, you know, unbreakable uh, encrypted communication system. And they got what was a really shocking snapshot of what was going on in the underworld. Repercussions of that um, hacking are still happening all the time, I noticed, especially in the UK. Constant cases up before the courts. Um, But this was 
prior to that. I mean, unfortunately for Bakiri, had this plot being made, you know, a couple of months later, they might have uh, been up on it. The, the, the police might have got information of it and been able to stop it. So back in the meantime to the fixer, because that's what you had uh, concentrated your piece on. Um, what has happened to him? Well, I just just on the point of EncroChat, you, you're right. It, it was quite fascinating. They they had an expert at the trial who was explaining that in in March 2020, I think it was the French police um, sort of broke the code or got into EncroChat, and they were then able to real read all these messages. But obviously, they didn't really know who they were, who they were from, and who they were to, etc. Um, but then in, in June 2020, the the people running EncroChat, you know, must have realised that oh you know it's game's over you know they already they, they're reading our messages so they just pulled the plug and told everybody get rid of your encro chat phones mm. um so there, there was some evidence but um hamisi when he was arrested he um he wiped his phone you know encro chat you know have the device where i think he he gave the police a password he said you know that's my that's my password to get into my phone knowing that that was actually the password that would wipe all the EncroChat stuff off it. So right. um, yeah, that was quite interesting. But yeah, Ahmed Carrere, where is he? That is a good question. Um, he mysteriously, after the after the murders, um, well, firstly, there was um, two of his uh, family's apartments in Stockholm. He lived in Stockholm. Uh, they were, there was bomb attacks on them. Um, and it was, uh, it was people demanding money off him, I think, from his gambling debts. Um, and he he then left. He 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 flew to Egypt, and apparently he was arrested in Egypt um, on a narcotics charge. And he was it's believed that he was um, smuggling drugs. Again, I'm not sure whether he was doing it for his own profit or whether somebody had told him, you know, to pay off these debts. You've got to do this for us. But he got arrested in Egypt. Then the last we hear of him, the Swedish embassy say that he was supposed to be deported back to Sweden. Um, but they've got no evidence of him actually getting off a plane in Sweden. So he's disappeared somewhere. He might have, you know, bribed some Egyptian official just to let him go. Um, he could be anywhere. Or, you know, maybe they've maybe Meki or somebody has, uh, has killed him because, you know, they don't want him, the, him mm-hmm. leading them back to uh, Meki. You know, he's probably the only person who could say, you know, yes, it was Amir Meki who gave the order for this murder. So... Yeah, and the fact of the matter is that that's as as strong a possibility as any because there's no question but these guys, when these murder plots are unravelled and when people are brought into court, they're dangerous times for the guys who've directed them. And unless they can keep everybody quiet and um, make sure everybody refuses to talk, refuses to give up any information, refuses to give evidence against them. And of course, people are in precarious situations themselves. They might be facing life imprisonment. Um, so silencing somebody who knows something who might have been once one of your own is not outside the realms of possibilities at all. In fact, it's parcel and parcel of that world. No, I, I think if I was a betting man, and again, no, I'm not going to go get into gambling debts, but I, I, um, I probably would put my money on that because... Mackie's a clever guy and, and, you know, to get somebody like Career to do all the organising, you know, to get this plot, um, he did all the coordinating uh, and then to take him out afterwards, that would be 
perfect. You know, the police are never going to be able to prove that you had anything to do with it mm-hmm. um, because you've you've taken the middleman out. Yeah, you're taking out the possibility of anything uh, anything coming back to to um, to bite you. Um, what was the just finally, Chris? What was the demeanor of anybody in court that was either giving evidence or you know in the dock? Well, uh, Anis Hamisi, um, obviously the this killer. I mean, he had a, it was quite strange. He his actual day job was as a carer, um, and apparently in Sweden he looked after uh, an old guy or a disabled guy. Had, you know, took him on holiday to Sweden. They got a glowing character reference when he was sentenced. Um, you know, so so he was a carer by day, and by night he was a professional hitman. Um, I mean, obviously they don't pay, pay carers enough. You know that. Yeah. <laughs> he needed to, you know, support his income. But um, he he didn't show much reaction at all when he was sentenced. He, he presumably knew, you know, the, there was massive evidence against him, and um, that was the likely outcome. Um, some of the smaller fry was quite interesting. There, um, the two guys from London who were convicted of perverting the course of justice. They were basically the cleanup man, so that they, they were paid, obviously, to go and um, take away the murder weapon, the masks, the suitcase, various other stuff from the apartment on Christmas Day. Um, they were then supposed to return and take away, you know, everything that had, you know, DNA, fingerprints, etc. But they never, they, they never got around to it or the police beat them to it. Um, but one of them was a, a single father. Um, he, he was, he's a sole care of two little boys. Um, and I, I must, you know, I, I felt a bit sad, you know, when, I, when he was, you know, he was sent to jail for three years. Um, presumably his children will go into care or something. But, you know, he's obviously just made a terrible career, you know, choice to... Um, probably seemed like easy money at the time and uh, he's going to jail for it. Interesting how high risk though that easy money is, isn't it? I mean, um, yeah, 35 years for the killer. Yeah. Hamisi got um, a minimum of 35 years, uh, which was exactly what I predicted actually. Uh, there was a Swedish journalist in court was asking, you know, how much do you, do you think he'll get? And it's interesting because I, I covered a, a case a few years, many, well, about 15 years ago of, um, you probably know the, the curse of Brinks, Matt, the, the famous London robbery. And there was a guy called George Francis who was killed there by two hitmen over unspecified reason why he was killed. It may have been something to do with the Brinks, Matt money. But in that case, both the, both the guys were given uh, 20 years minimum. But I think um, I was talking to the prosecutor, Mark Hayward, QC, and he was saying that nowadays um, murder for gain you know, actual contract killing, they, they put the uh, the tariff up. So, yeah, you, you can expect to get 35 years um, for that now. And is that a separate charge, murder for gain, or is that an actual, you know, is, is no, no, contract? It's just, no, it's just murder. It's yeah. just an aggravating factor, you know. Um, yes, Obviously, yes, yeah. also a gun, you know, use, the use of a firearm, and also the fact that he did it in front of a the guy's wife and child, that was also an aggravating factor. So, Yeah, look, the fallout is is just, you know, enormous. I mean, on both sides, really, the loss of freedom for those men who took up the uh, the mantle to, to earn the money to take on the hit. And obviously that little two-year-old child of Bakiri's who um, hopefully won't remember that horrible night, but mm. nonetheless will grow up without a father. Um, yeah. So... 
Well, Chris Summers, a, a fascinating story, and thanks so much for coming on to tell us. No worries. Thanks for having me, and uh, take care out there. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.